Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Apostle, and I'm very excited to have Clarkisha Kent here with us today. Hi, Clarkisha. Hey, how you doing? So good. So good. Um, so you've just released a book that we are going to talk about. It is called, I love your title, by the way. It is so fun. It is called Fat Off, Fat On, A Big Bitch Manifesto. And I have to say, like, I just feel like shouting it whenever whenever I see it or hear it. There's so much power in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to talk all about it. I'm so glad you're here. I've been following you for a while. Um, and you're such, um, yeah, you're just such a clear voice in the space. And I'm really honored to get to talk to you in person. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Clarkisha? Okay, well, low down dirty is that, you know, uh, I describe myself now as an internet shit talker, um, but, you know, had lived many, many different lives. Um, originally from Tennessee, um, I moved to Chicago for college. Um, that's kind of where I already had like writing aspirations, but that's kind of where like the film aspirations um, materialized. So I got my degree in English and cinema media studies. Um, And then, you know, I don't want to say I found the internet because the internet was always there and I've always been on the internet actually. But in terms of like using it to write, that kind of ramped up when I was in college. Um, I had a blog prior to kind of my college writing, but it really kind of sharpened once I was in college. And then when I left college, I was like, I can do this professionally. which obviously easier said than done, um, but kind of my toiling during that time kind of led to now, um, where you know, kind of my funny hee hee ha ha things in college became maybe more serious, especially in terms of like uh, writing more about things like racism, fat phobia, even politics at the time, um, and yeah, it kind of led me here because at that point two or three years out of college, um, my agent, shout out to Claire Draper um, of the Bent Agency, slid into my DMs after a couple years of me, you know, doing the internet shit talking thing. Um, They're like, so do you have an agent? And I'm like, no. So that's kind of when we kind of linked up. And then it's kind of been, since then, it's just me kind of like uh, continuing to sharpen my voice, um, so to speak. Um, But yeah, that's kind of like the quick dirty of it all. Um, I've been writing for places like Entertainment Weekly, um, The Root, Essence, MTV News, HuffPost, like, if you name it, there's like a 50-50 chance I've written for them already. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. And then, you know, my book, like you mentioned, is all set, all set on Big Bitch Manifesto. Took about two-ish years, technically, to write and develop. But, you know, probably idea that was bubbling inside of me for, like, some time now, probably a decade or so. But, yeah, that's the quick. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, I love hearing how an agent slid into your DMs. I'm I'm a creative writing coach on the side. So I actually work with a lot of aspiring writers and writers. And what that process you just described would have writers salivating like, oh, someone just came to you. That's amazing. And you also had been writing and putting yourself out there and like working for it. Yeah, I was uh, very lucky in that realm because uh, they turned out to be like, uh, basically it was like a friend of a friend thing that happened. Like, you know, their colleague had been talking about me, you know, they came up with conversation and then they, you know, I have my own mm, feelings about her now, Miss Ava DuVernay, lots of feelings. Um, but I will say one thing she was very correct about is the fact that like, you know, opportunities will come. Um, but the work has to be there, especially if you are marginalized, you know, especially if you're not white, you're fat, you're a woman, we keep going, you're queer. Um, you know, it's going to take a while sometimes, unfairly, for those opportunities to, you know, pop up for you. But it's one of those things where, like, when they do pop up, you need to be ready because they pop up for real and there's no warning. No one is like, oh, yeah, tomorrow you're going to get this random DM from this agent. Nobody's going to tell you that. It's gonna happen so um that's the thing you know i was prepared for them because even after they slid in right i we still gotta talk still gotta show them the rest of my portfolio that kind of thing so it's one of those things where like yeah the opportunity presented itself was one of those things if i didn't have shit right if i didn't have shit to show for it besides my tweets even though my tweets are awesome then you know that she get you know no one can do anything with that you know no one can do anything with that so um yeah you gotta do the work and the work sucks, but you got to do the work. Yeah. <laughs> work sucks ass. That's what they don't tell you. They're like, oh, you know, it sucks. It do. It do yeah. suck. But yeah. yeah you because I know I do have a number of writers who listen and people who write. I'm so curious about your writing process. Do you, are you like a ass in chair two hours a day? Do you write when it strikes you? Like, what's your process? Because writers love talking about their process, right? So for the... For the book, it was definitely my ass in the seat for a couple of hours. Um, it's one of those things too. I had to uh, reorient myself to a seat, to a desktop, to a corner, um, because I feel like sometimes, I mean, technology is good in theory when you have no ethics, right? Which is the moment that we're in because people focused too much on tech, and not enough on humanities. But it's a conversation for another day. Um, you know, when that happens, then tech can get really strange and potentially evil. But also, when, even if we're not talking about that kind of dark stuff, tech has this way of ungrounding you. So for writing is one of those things where like, you know, I have, I'm on a laptop right now. I love my laptop. But with the laptop is a temptation to constantly move with it. So I'm going from my room to, I don't know, the bathroom, to the kitchen, to the wherever. And I'm like, you know, there's not sen any sense of like grounding in terms of making sure I can actually write something while I'm on the move. So for me to get my book done, I was like, I'm going to be on this desktop 
in my room. And from this time to this time I'm writing, um, if something came up or I didn't feel like writing at that particular time, I would figure out what other time I can write during that day. Sometimes it'd be early in the day. Sometimes it'd be later in the day because I am a night owl. Um, and I would just sit give myself two hours. Because if it's under one hour, it's probably not going to be enough. But if it's over two hours, because I have ADHD. So over two hours, I'm going to be burnt out. So I was like, let me go ahead and put this you know, two-hour mark. Now, in the event that, you know, some idea that's super awesome strikes me and I decide I want to ride past the two-hour mark, that's fine. But, you know, at least hitting that two-hour mark was kind of my goal. But it, it would not have happened if I didn't pick a space to, like, ride in and stay in. Um, now, if we're talking about other, you know, other writing I've done online and et cetera and some of the other magazines, well, definitely more free-flowing. Um, you know, the laptop was in play. I definitely was writing wherever. Um, and at some points, I was also writing on my phone for, like, a while when I was doing, uh, like, 9 to 5 work. If I was on a break or something or on lunch, I was just going to be on my phone writing the whole thing. I can, you know, put the links and stuff in there later, but like writing kind of the meat of my arguments. Um, and then for both processes, um, I eventually bought um, a shower notepad. So, oh, put, yeah, you know, you know, a shower notepad. You get so many aha moments in a shower. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you don't have time to like leave the shower and go find a pen. No, so I had a shower notepad. And, you know, whenever some idea, either for the book or another article popped up, I'll just quickly do a shorthand scribble. And then, you know, later, come back, grab that little page from the thing and then get to work. So every time I tell my friends, you're like, that exists. I'm like, yes, it actually should have existed for a while. I actually don't know why it's going to be invention. Because everybody knows that water hits your head and suddenly you, you have discovered the key to existence, but people haven't really capitalized on it until like very recently. But I love my shower notepad. I actually have to get a new one because the last one kind of like fell apart with the book because I was doing so much going back and forth with the notes I've written down. So I got to get a new one, but it's really good. It is, it is water friendly. You just go and just write. It's, it's, yeah, it'd be great for in the bath too. Like, I mean, you just you could have a so smart. That's so smart. Oh, I love that. And I think it's so fun that you were like, no, no, I can't have any technology that moves. I must be anchored with a desktop to write this book. There's like a ritual to that, right? Like I will be in this place for two hours, set a timer and like I can't go anywhere. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, I don't want to be that, you know, get off my lawn, old person or whatever. But, um, yeah, tech, um, I don't know. I feel like it's done weird things to dull kind of our creative senses. Um, and, you know, that it kind of makes me nervous sometimes, too, um, as someone who, like, I love tech. Like, you know, if you ask my friends and even my parents, I'm very, from a very young age, very tech savvy. I love what we can do with it. I also don't like, I also don't love what we can do with it at the same time, right? Um, so I worry about that a lot in terms of knowing how to navigate. Um, and also, even with the desktop argument, um, this is a practice I developed from being in libraries, right? 
So libraries and net good have also been gutted <laughs> in favor of other things. I'm a former librarian. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, whenever I can, I'm like, go support your local library. Um, but yeah, I always encourage people to kind of like, if they can, um, find ways to do less with tech. Uh, you know, at some point I was also in like a notebook for my um, book as well. So it's one of those things where um, I tell people if they can, don't try not to be over-reliant on it. Um, because you never, you really never know what can happen. Life's very unpredictable. We could wake up one day and I don't know, all the cell phone towers knock out. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We don't know, you know? So, I don't know. I try to tell people, like, if you really can, try to, like, you know, pare down on your, like, reliance on certain tech. But, yeah. And, again, another conversation. Yeah, it's so true, though. I'm, just because we're talking about it, I'm really curious because it's so in the news right now. And I know a lot of people are playing with it, especially writers. How are you feeling about chat GPT? I, I don't. I was like, I don't think it's cute. I don't think it's funny. You know, people are like, oh, there's so much things. I'm like, no. Because at the end of the day, you are feeding your words. Your creativity into this thing. Yeah, into this machine. It doesn't matter. They'd be like, oh, well, it's fine. I was like, yeah, for now. For now. We know how tech usually goes in, especially the Western world. It always gets it always gets weaponized. It always circles back to what weapon can we build to profit from. So I'm actually, you know, I can say no names. I will be disrespectful. But I'm actually quite irritated <laughs> with some people in my community who, like, are not, it's not clicking. I'm like, they're dangerous. Um, I'm also annoyed because I want us to be better at being in solidarity with other creatives. Um, visual artists, um, sketch artists, illustrators have already, they've been actually ringing the alarm on this type of tech, this type of AI. And I feel like sometimes writers think that, I don't know, they're better. I, I don't know where that kind of attitude comes from. But um, I don't know. There's this attitude that writing won't be touched by this. And I don't know where people are getting that from. A hundred percent it is already. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't like it for a lot of reasons. But I really hate it because, like I said, lack of solidarity with um, visual artists um, and visual creatives. My partner's an illustrator and it's, he's, yeah, like he's, there's so much already illustrators and visual artists have been just like the, you know, what he made 10 years ago versus what he makes now is like a, such a low percentage, like way less than half. And uh, yeah. And it's interesting. He was, he was doing some pitches. And so he was like, let me just try out chat GPT um, about, he's a children's book illustrator. So it was kind of like a monster like a monster story with kids. And anyway, so what was so interesting though um, about what came back was that, cause the, there was like an allegory to the story and we were talking about it of like the monster as being un other, you know, like capital other and how, how do we interact with people who are different than ourselves? And holy smokes, what chat GPT came back with was like, the monsters are horrible. They're going to eat. Like it was very, there was no, and I, we even tried, I was like, have it rewrite it with like an anti-oppression or an anti-racist context. We even tried, like you should, we even tried, like, imagine the monster is actually, this is horrible to say out loud, but we're trying to figure out the system. Like, imagine the monster is a black man. Like, 
you know what I mean? Like, how do we get past what is being pro what's been programmed in by the linguistics? Like just to, or some kind of minority, we try different things like a fat person or someone who's disabled, like trying all these different things to be like, can this algorithm have an awareness of what otherness is now with our experimentation, no, it was very much other is bad. And I was like, oh, I'm very disappointed. Like that's, that's not okay. So that was kind of my experience with exploring with it as, as, you know, using it for writing. Yeah. These, um, you know, tech is still made by man and man is uh, <laughs> subject to these oppressions or again, also doing the oppressing depending on type of, man, right, I'm using man in a gender-neutral sense. Tech is going to pick up on people's biases and um, agendas and et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's all I'll say about that now. But, you know, it doesn't, that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting. Thank you. All right. So let's talk about fatness. Um, so what is your relationship to the word fatness? Like, what has your journey been with this word? So now, I mean, it's been a very long journey, but now for me, it's, you know, it's a descriptor as like same as small or tall or, you know, skinny, short, everything, right? It's a simple descriptor, technically. Now people outside of me will ascribe different meanings to it, usually negative meanings. But like I said, I like to be like, it's a descriptor. And if you're describing, if you're adding any extra thing to it, that says more about you than me. So that's not my cross to bear. Um, I will say though that I will I prefer it over things like what's it what's it larger bodied plus size yeah higher weight individuals higher yeah. weight I don't like shit like that I think it's very childish I think the way that people um, split hairs on vocab sometimes very childish. Um, for me, I especially don't really, I, don't, I understand how people feel. I don't like the plus size thing because um, in my mind, you know, you are relegating fatness to a respectable other in that context because plus size denotes that there is a normal size or a standard size. So you're still, there's still othering happening within that terminology. Um, it's the same thing as like, I hate extended sizing. What the fuck is that? Again, implication that there is a standard size that is carried, and then you are the extended size, the extraneous size that they happen to bring in, I guess, for this period, however temperate it's happening. So, yeah, for me, it, it technically is a simple descriptor, but, um, you know, I feel like people's aversion to that word is why I also insist on using it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So do you use straight size for non-fat people or fat, non-fat? Like, what do you... Oh, what do I'm you just use? skinny and thin. Skinny and thin. My whole thing is like, you know, now people feel weird about saying it. But I'm like, why do you feel weird? You was very happy about it in the past. Some of y'all be very proud of it. So why is it... Why Now why are we trying to... Why are we trying to shift? No, you know, stand your ground that word. Stand 10 toes down. You know, you you liked you liked that. So I don't. I really don't. When I hear straight size, I bust out laughing. I'd be like, "You're not a serious individual. 
you're not a serious individual. And, you know, I usually I will be polite and just choose not to like, like not to say anything. If it's something that persists, then there will be a conversation had that the other person will not like. But yeah, that straight size shit, I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Well, now we have midsize too that's kind of making the rounds, which is the size like, I think it's around like a size eight to 12 ish now. There, it's like mid size. Anyway, I know how we have what we call things is can get really complicated. That's why I just, I like fat to me feels just easy. Yeah. It's fine. Just, just fine. I have to say, I'm having, I am having fun. I was reading, um, Aubrey Gordon's book and, uh, she uses non fat. And I just, I kind of love it because it's like, well, then that means it in a way, I guess it's a bit reverse. So maybe it's not great in some senses of like, it's kind of othering the other person. Whereas I feel like as a fat person, I've always been othered because I've always been like the plus size, but now I'm like fat. And then there's people who aren't fat. You are the non fats, but I kind of love, I don't know. It, cha- it feels like it changes the energy a little bit for me. So I kind of get a tickle out of saying that. Oh, no, I feel that. I feel that. You know, the operative words here is still fat, which again, I, I fuck with. I like that word. Short, sweet, to the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also, like you, enjoy using it to uh, evoke reactions in people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, other people ascribe these terrible definitions um, and I will insist on using that because I don't find them uncomfortable. But I was like, if you find them comfortable, then maybe look within. But yeah, I just, you know. Were you, have you been fat your whole life or were you different sizes? What's your. So I've been fat my whole life. I will say though, and I talk about in the book, um, you know, definitely the whole, I don't know if early 2000 people remember yo yo dieting. They loved using that term, but, you know, I definitely did that. So in high school in particular, my weight was very, um, it was unstable, especially like them last two years. So junior, senior year, um, I had a whole, I went on a whole like little journey. I put in quotations because it was a bad, it was a bad journey. I went on a <laughs> journey where like, I, I think I dropped like 40, 45 pounds um in like a summer which as you know is not good um but you know I'm determined to like be skinny because that was the thing I was supposed to be right so high school was definitely yeah definitely a bad time um I got to college and uh I gained some of it back which was distressing to me so then I picked up sports um but you know I was like buff per se, but still on like the heavier side. Um, and then I had the uh, ACL injury that happened also in the book. Y'all can read about that um, and gained even more weight. Um, so it was it was a really tough time. You know, my fat politics was not there. You know, I was not thinking about that. Um, but yeah, uh, eventually I got to a place after leaving a lot of these places including california where i was like yeah i can't like insist on like hating my body like this anymore like it's it's i don't have to be super in love with it every day every hour every second but like this thing where like i just have this just normal hateful relationship with my body is not great 
But yeah, I haven't found my life, even though, you know, I would say earlier versions of me did not want to be. I'll say that. Was it kind of gradual or was there a moment that spurned you to learn about body liberation, fat liberation that started to create that fat politic that you now live from? For me, it's weird because it didn't really occur to me to develop that. Because like I said, I've been running from being fat for like a while, right? So I would say the politics for me probably started around 2016 onwards. Um, But even the 2016 part was fed because of my ACL injury. So it's one of those things I got really familiar not only with internalized fat phobia, but also internalized ableism. So it's one of those things where, like, as soon as I was injured and I had to gain, and not had to, I gained all that weight, right? You know, there was, like, this, this kind of, like, battle in my head about these things. So I would say it technically started 2014, 2015, but 2016, where I really started thinking about these things more seriously. Um, part of that is due to online spaces, you know, online spaces, um, fat liberation spaces, um, you know, used to be body positivity. You saw what happened with that. Um, you know, then people have to be everywhere. So kind of what happened. Um, but that is why, again, I love the word facts because there's no if, ands, and buts about it. So now that you put fat back in front of liberation, what you finna do? You think you can't come over here. Sorry. Um, and that's why vocabulary is really important, but that's also why I'm like, don't split hairs on it. Don't try to be respectable with it. Um, you know, um, the body positivity movement has a lot of history. People forget it goes back, you know, we're talking about like black women, um, in like what, 60s, 70s. So like it precedes all this shit, but that said, like the recent incarnation was definitely Columbus. So it was interesting because my, you know, my fat politic did start growing then. Um, but yeah, it, it took off into a different direction when I met a lot of uh, fat um, advocates and um, activists online from that 2016 period onward. So that's kind of a little haphazard journey because I went back and forth with it. Um, but yeah. Did you say it got columbus Yes. I've not heard that term before. That's brilliant. It, it, when I use that word, you know, people, the eyebrows go up and, you know, sometimes there's like a shift in the energy. And I'm like, good, because that's what's happening. You are Christopher Columbus and you're pulling up and you're killing people and you're fucking manatees. And like, I want to invoke all that imagery so you understand what has happened here. Um, yeah. That's good. Thank you. I'm, is that, did you, had you heard that or did you create that? Um, I don't, it's, so it's interesting because like, I, unless it's one of these tests or something, I sometimes hesitate to be like, I created something. Cause you never know if you like just heard someone random on the street say it and it just happened to like stick. Right. So I don't, I, I decay about if I created it, but I will say that, you know, in the very least, I'm an early adopter. <laughs> I'm an early adopter. So, you know, usually I'll go look at tweets and see maybe how far back I used it. We don't know. But I'll say in the very least, there's someone else out there who used it before me. I will say early adoptee. Um, 
maybe I popularized it sometimes. I don't say that, but I do care. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's such a great term. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so let's talk about the book a little further. So I, I grabbed a quote from your website, which I thought was still a great, first of all, on your website, it says you are a culture critic and bringer of chaos at your service. And I just love that, a bringer of chaos. And then you've also described yourself as an internet shit, shit talker, which both are just fantastic. Um, so from your website, uh, the quote I grabbed was that this book explores your own lived experience to illuminate how fat phobia intertwines with other oppressions. It stresses the importance of addressing the violence scored upon our minds and our bodies and how we might begin the difficult but joyful work of setting ourselves free. That's a big hell yes. Um, yes, please. That's amazing. So how did you know it was time to write this book? That actually goes back to my agent once again. Like, I've always had these stories within me, right? Um, but, you know, once I started talking to my agent and, you know, we signed up paperwork and made it formal, right? Um, I went back to them because they're like, okay, so what's the plan? What do we want to, you know, what we want to pitch to these publishers and stuff. So I actually had a Western first that I started working on again back in 2015 when I was still in college. It's still cooking. You know, I got to do hella research. So I had to put that down for a second because, you know, you can't half-ass research. Um, so, but I w wanted to work on it and I did want that technically to be my first project. Um, but my agent was like, all right. I like the idea, but consider, so they pitched a memoir to me. And it's one of those things where like they pitched it because they were like, um, you know, a genre like the Western um, is, is niche hate that word, but it's niche. Um, and you really, there has to be name recognition going into that process if you want to succeed. So they're like, how about we do this first? You know, get your feet wet publishing, get your name out there. And then, you know, you can come back and be like, okay, let me write this project that I really want to write, but now you have more clout, more money, more resources behind you. Um, so that's kind of how that happened. And again, I, you know, I, I work with a lot of life stories, memoir writers, and there's often a point where uh, it's almost like there's a real tenderness and a rawness that comes up as you kind of go back and excavate. And, and then everyone has different ways of kind of moving through that. Did, were there moments like that for you as you were kind of digging deeper into your past? Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, there were some moments. Um, there were like really good moments, really bad moments. Um, I was lucky during um, the process at the time to have access to a psychiatrist, a psychologist. So it was one of those things where like, if something, you know, sad or traumatic resurfaced, then I would just be like, okay, yes, I'm done with that chapter for the day. And I would call up my psychologist or psychiatrist and I'd be like so you mean room on your schedule this week <laughs> yeah because you don't want to re-traumatize you know yeah. and there's a real risk of that with memoir yes so you know I definitely advise anyone who's like interested in diving into memoir um to have that type of help on deck because it's uh the very it's an extreme sport <laughs> yeah it's an extreme sport writing memoir um but yeah, also, but it's also the genre demands a lot of you and you have to be ready for that. 
Um, that's why when the genre, like when the memoir is not as well written, you can kind of, you can you can really tell because you can tell because the author phoned it in. Um, so yeah, the memoir demands um, a kind of a naked honesty that is not required of you from say a biography or even an autobiography, right? There's still some like distance there. Um, memoir, not so much. So no, yeah. And I love that in the quote that I read, it talked about, you know, this work of setting ourselves free. So I don't know if this is a cheesy question or not, but it's in my mind. So I'm going to ask it. And that is, so what, like, how did writing this book set you free? It definitely put to bed a lot of stuff for me. Um, I would say first and foremost, um, it connected some dots. Like the act of writing it was able to like reflect and connect dots. Oh, that's great. I process by writing. I always have. Like I could, for example, let's say you're in my head and you see idea A and B next to each other. You as the outsider, you know these things are connected. My brain is like, okay, they next to each other. So what? But let's say I start writing and then you notice the nasty they start firing with each other because now my writing has made the connection, helped me make the connection. So that's kind of what happened, especially writing about my family, um, writing it, like seeing it on paper made everything make sense. Like doesn't justify what happened to me or like, you know, that family in general, but it's one of those things where like now that I see on paper, I see how we got here. And that's really important um, because a lot, for a lot of our problems, um, they start in childhood they start right there, and we spend all of childhood trying to figure out what the fuck happened. <laughs> so, and into adulthood for many of us. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's important for me to see it on paper. Um, and then I think other than that, too, I would say that um, I'm very spiritual, um, and you know, something that um, I do. Uh, that I've done in the past is like, if I'm trying to like, let something go, um, I'll write about it. I'll like bullet over my brain. Um, I'll talk to whoever about it. And then like, I'll put on down on paper and then I'll burn that shit. And then like, like literally burn it. Yeah. And that's about the release, you know? So that's kind of how I view the process of writing this down. I was like, okay, so, um, I'm getting it on paper. Um, we're going to leave it there and we're going to send it out and send it away from me. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting process because yeah, just writing it kind of pulled out some of the stuff that I had like put away in the attic of my brain. Right. So I had, to, you know, I had to dig those boxes out. I had to start packing. Um, sometimes it wasn't pretty, but it was good to like, again, get it out of my brain and kind of like finally put it to rest. Yeah. Oh, it's so powerful. And like out of your body, cause our body holds so much, right? So yeah, that process of just bringing it up and then being able to let it go. I love that you actually like lit it on fire. That's perfect. It's such a great analogy of like, this is ephemeral. This gets to just kind of float away. Like, and I am left. Yeah, where I want to be a choice. Yeah, that's beautiful, Clarkisha. Cool. You mentioned that you uh, have faith. You have a faith 
Um, and one of the things that we talked about exploring in our conversation was this idea of purity culture and fatness. So I'm fascinated. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, y'all will have to look up like the proper definition of purity culture because, you know, I'm not as sophisticated as Webster's um, or Free Dictionary or whoever. I'm on Oxford. We keep going. Um, but I would say, you know, if I were to sum up in my own words, purity culture is um, dominant white Christian heterosexual um a cult, I would say, like a cult of thought, especially um, that is designed to control um, the bodies of, you know, women primarily um, or those who don't fall under what is considered straight or heterosexual. Um, and it also relies on racial stratification, too. Um, you know, because if you know anything about the history of black people and how our bodies have been exploited, then you will know that our bodies are not seen as pure. Right. So if you're a black person, you're existing under this, this, this cult of purity culture. It is doubly worse, instantly doubly worse. Um, and I talked about that a little bit in my book, um, but that would be kind of the summations designed to control um, and cater to a, a quite literal patriarchal mindset. Because it sets up God as the father, even though God is supposed to be genderless. But again, another conversation. <laughs> right. Um, so that's what I would say, like the quick dirty of purity culture. Um, but the reason I talked about fatness with it is because um, fatness deviates um, from the white supremacist norm. Um, if we're thinking about wasps, right? Like think about a wasp. Have you seen, do you see fat wasps? Like, not really. If you're seeing like a white waspy person, they're usually thin, right? So that's, that's another thing. So, um, I'm just going to jump in in case people don't know what wasp is. It's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which is, yeah, kind of the culture within patriarchy. When we're talking about fatness and purity culture, I thought it was important to, um, talk about it because, if you're thinking about how fatness especially um, works, if we're thinking about, um, let's say, like the like sin, sinning, deadly sins, um, we know that gluttony and sloth are among them, right? So, if we're thinking about religious context of fat phobia, you know, people, religious people too, will sign off on using fat phobia as a weapon. Um, because they have the, you know, the whole gluttonous sloth thing to fall back on. So they can like shame you into submission and be like, oh, well, you're not here because not only you're, you're a woman or you're queer or you're black or whatever, but you're fat. So that means you're gluttonous and you're greedy and you're not smart and you're lazy. Like they can, you know, just start really just diving into like denigrating you because of that religious, um, context so i was like i think i would have been doing a disservice to not talk about um that in terms of purity culture for discussing like um women um but on top of that if we're talking about particularly um black women and or women of color right um we tend to get sexualized way more when we are fat um because as you know 
for people who covet like the the big titties, the big ass or whatever, oftentimes all of those things come with a fat stomach, right? So, you know, when you're younger, I know when I was younger, I think I was between the ages of 12 and 14 is when I really started like developing. And that's also when problems started with specifically my mom, um, which I'm sure a lot of fat girls can relate to that really weird relationship with your mom, especially if she's either like as fat as you or like much skinnier, right? So there's usually those two forces at work. But um, yeah, you know, because I was fatter, you know, I looked more developed than some of my peers. So that also drew some additional hostility um, within the church. So that's another aspect that people forget about, too, the way that you know, fatness will um, elicit certain reactions from people, including sexual. Um, that is not fair to us, obviously. Um, but that is what happens. Um, so I was like, it would be very much an oversight to leave out how fat phobia um, plays into um, purity culture, into white supremacist culture. Because it is white supremacist culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting. I, you know, the piece around how bodies get sexualized and then demonized for being sexualized. Like, it's very... There's kind of an it, it ends up to me always feeling like a no win for for fat it is people. It's a no win situation. It is absolutely no win situation. And it also really pisses me off. Arkeisha, <laughs> I just like yeah, Same. yeah. Same. I grew up um, Greek Orthodox, which is a type of Christianity, and uh, yeah, I I as soon as it's so interesting as soon as you said the words gluttony and slothfulness, I was I it took me right back to when I was a kid in Sunday school and these things were being talked about. And I just, I remember like that feeling of shame of, oh, they're talking about me. I need to burn something right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have this podcast. I have these conversations to really dive deep into these issues, to raise awareness because I have both fat and non-fat listeners. Um, and for the fat people, I often think about this is like a, an, a time when people can be like, oh, thank God I'm not alone. And for the non-fat people, I think I'm hoping and what I hear they write me is like, wow, I didn't realize, never thought about this. Thank you. So like when it comes to this purity culture piece, like what, what, what do you want people to know? What can, what can we think about deepen? How do we start to unravel? Cause this is like really deep in us. How do we start to unravel it for ourselves? What would you suggest? People aren't going to want to hear this, especially if they're more religious, but it's one of those things where like, there will have to be a symbol, like a mass divestment away from Christianity. Um, I don't care how it makes people feel, but that is like the source of a lot of what feeds into that beast. Um, not to say that if you know Christianity disappeared overnight, we would be okay. No, we still have to deprogram, and that's the reality, right? Um, but for me, yeah, it's, it would have to be a massive, like, exodus from that particular faith and some of these other faiths, too. But again, another conversation. Um, if we're on the other side of that, and I we're talking about this fat phobia's role in particular, um, dealing with fat phobia would require um, 
a lot more self-awareness from people, even fat people, um, and a more rigorous fat um, politic. And when I say rigorous, I'm meaning that people need to zone in on those intersections. Um, lots of people, even though resources are abundant, lots of people don't know that, you know, at the crux of um, anti-fat bias and fat phobia is um, racism and anti-blackness. Um, that line of demarcation emerged um, way, way, way back. Um, I would recommend people read um, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. Um, she talks about how fat phobia emerged, at least in these, you know, in the Western world, um, from that contact that happened between Europeans and, you know, Africans. Um, fat phobia used to be, you know, like if you're fat, you're rich, you're well fed, you know, you're of a certain class, certain high class, right? Um, you know, they get in contact with Africans, they see the Africans are also, you know, plump and curvy and whatever and they decide that hey we don't want to look like them because we're we don't want to be grouped in with them so then you know these racial categories start to pop up like okay you know i'm white I'm white therefore i'm thin and i'm smart and i'm wise and i'm enlightened and this other person is black and they're fat that means they're lazy right unintelligent um sloppy they love using that one for a sloppy um, so that's, that's literally how these things emerged. Um, so when particularly a fat white person decides they don't want to do any deeper analysis where race is concerned, um, it's, it's very much ignorant to me. It's given an oversight because you're erasing kind of the crucial, um, crux of the fat phobia. Um, in addition to that, I feel like people also don't or not don't people should also keep in mind that fat phobia is a system of oppression not just about name calling um it's very that's a very um elementary understanding of fat phobia um and it just it when i say it intertwines with so many things i really mean that um especially let's say um disability um when we're talking about healthcare um, people forget that, you know, obesity is considered a disease, morbid, you know, disease. Um, and, um, that's also why I've been disappointed with some fat writers, um, especially that Guardian piece that just came out, <laughs> a whiff of fat will be in the air, like it hasn't been here. But, um, yeah, I get irritated with some writers because they don't link, um, fat phobia with ableism even though the connection is right there. Um, even though that they worked in tandem during the pandemic because people were afraid of getting fat, even though COVID will literally take your circulatory system and play jump rope with it. But because companies, these diet and fitness companies preyed on the very childish fear, it is childish. And I'll say that someone who went to that fear, right? Very childish fear of getting fat we had fat phobia and ableism joining hands so that, you know, people were risking their lives to go to the gym to keep off this COVID 15 pounds that people were, you know, talking about. So, um, yeah, when we talk about dismantling these things, 
you need to actually understand what's at stake and what's going on. Um, I feel like people in general, again, even other fat people have very, very, very surface understanding of fat phobia. And for us to be even close to having conversations about eradicating it, you have to know the history. You have to know its reach. You have to know what it looks like in different contexts, because like any source of oppression, um, it is always ready to evolve, to transform, to hide itself, to unhide itself, you know, um, shit is very complex. And sophisticated. Like yes. these oppressive systems are sophisticated. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So um, it's going to it's going to require deeper, deeper level analysis that a lot of people aren't ready for. Um, you know, phobia is not to say other oppressions aren't acceptable in certain parts of the world, even here in the States. But phobia is one of those things where like a lot of people agree on it, even other marginalized people. And when you point that out, people get really defensive. I'm like, no, um, it is normalized to a lot of y'all, even people who would call themselves very progressive. Um, I remember the other day I got into it a couple of people. I blocked them because I'm not going to go back and forth with anybody. And, and, and these people aren't going to be my ass either. So, but people, someone had tweeted like, okay, what opinion would get you? I think it was that Flynn, you know, that Flynn meme where like he's, he's posted up, he's crossing his arms and it's like 25 million swords pointed at his face. Right. And they're like, oh, what opinion would get you like, um, in this type of situation with leftist people, right? As as some people know, I hate online leftists, but even if I'm not thinking about my hatred of them, um, I had commented, I was like, being a fat phobic, like fat phobic leftist is like brainless behavior. Like you have nothing but a tin can up there as far as I'm concerned, because if you're someone who cares about the future of healthcare, you want free healthcare, you want universal healthcare, you need to care about fat phobia because fat phobia diminishes the quality of care for everybody. For everybody. For everybody. Doctors fucking phoning in because they're fucking fat phobic. Like, I don't think people understand. Doctors are not properly doing their job because they're fat phobic, because they're racist. Because they're ableist, like we can keep going, right? Um, and like I've had, I've heard horror stories from all sorts of people who are either thin or fat, or you know, or swapped, or formerly fat. Doesn't matter, formerly skinny. And you know, it's always, you know, I went to this doctor for the serious issue, and they're like, "Oh, lose this weight." Turns out, I had like stage fifteen cancer. I know, like. Honestly, so, I know. You know, I just yeah, yeah. I it it. I don't know. It bothers me. It bothers me because it's so. It's very frustrating. I know. I interviewed a doctor the other day, and they were like, "Look, what I want people to know is that doctors are your enemy if you're fat or marginalized. Like, just know walking in that that's what you're walking into, and it's unconscious. They've been trained this way." A lot of them aren't doing deeper work. I think for and me, the other part for me that I think is really interesting about what you said, especially around like, you know, leftists, is I'm 
always surprised. I don't know why I'm still surprised, Karkisha. I you think I would not be surprised by anything anymore, but I'm still always surprised when I'm talking to someone who's like a DEI expert and is in like an anti-oppression educator. And then I bring up sizeism as like, you always know, see like the fat person in the training. I'm like, and what about fat people? And they're like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, they haven't thought about anti-fatness as part of, and then I'm like, and then I bring up and I said, oh, well, have you heard of Sabrina Strings? And this is the book and anti-fatness rooted in racism. And here's the history. And they're still like, they're spinning. They've never connected. Like, this is where I feel like, you know, the diet and wellness industrial complex, the kind of the, the way diet culture has been structured by capitalism, like has just been so sophisticated. It's been very successful. So successful, right? Oh, yeah. And then, and I never know what to do because I just want to like scream and be like, open your damn eyes and brain. And like, this is not hard. This is not a big leap, but it's really hard for people. So I will link to Sabrina Strings book. I'll also link to Deshaun Harrison's book, who I always link to. Is it Harris or Harrison? Harrison, right? Belly of the Beast. I link to them a lot just because, again, like I think it is so helpful for people to understand the origins of where a lot of this comes from. And I don't know, this is probably not a great thing to say, but I'll say it. But it's almost like linking fatness with racism somehow gives like clout to fatness. Have you ever felt that? It's like if I say it's tied to racism, then some people will take it more seriously who I so yeah I don't necessarily agree because there's some people who take yeah who don't take um racism seriously period so it's one of those things like you tie them together they're gonna be like oh I, I need to really ignore this now um so yeah I just you know it's it those two things obviously fall into the undesirable category so the people who already don't want to engage with one definitely will engage if the other is brought up as well. So um, I think you have to just be prepared for ignorance and pushback regardless. Um, but, you know, but but in a way, if you are talking to someone who does present themselves as being very anti-racist, then, you know, then bringing up the origins of fat phobia well, you know, maybe maybe that might go over well with them. I don't know. But um, it's very complex. And uh, people are very racist and fatphobic and have been so for a long time. So, <laughs> so you know, sometimes making the connection works, sometimes it doesn't. Just It really just depends on the person that you're addressing. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about queerness yet. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Which is a whole other layer to add in. Yeah. I imagine that comes up quite a bit in your book. Do you write about that as well? I did, did. yeah. I wrote about um, being bisexual and also being demisexual because um, demisexual is on the um, ace slash arrow spectrum, um, but doesn't get talked about as much. So I was like, let me just go ahead and put this in here. You know, y'all have questioning. Y'all can look this shit up. I feel comfortable. I'll discuss it more. But yeah, so definitely talk about being queer and also um, how that complicates things like purity culture and fat phobia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, beautiful. 
Um, I'm very excited to read the book. I hope it arrives soon. I was hoping to read it before we talked, but I know it's on the way and I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to dive in and get all those details. Um, so one thing before we go, we wanted to talk about the Kelly and Cat test. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So Kelly and Cat test, we released back in February. It was me and my colleague, Sydney Sky G. Um, they are um, inflammatory fat on Twitter right now. And I believe some variation of Sydney Sky G on Instagram. Very, 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 very brilliant um, fat liberation advocate. Um, they regularly shake the table. I appreciate them a lot because um, they will go where the standard fat person might not because of you know the backlash. Um, recently, they were they made the connection between um, shapewear um, and fat phobia, and a lot of people weren't happy because they're fave right now. Their fave right now is pushing shapewear, but you know. We go, we go again. We go. I'm not gonna get into that, but people know what I'm talking about right now. But um, yeah, me and them collaborating the test. It actually was in the works for about a, a year at least, because um, we started um, when the second season of Euphoria came out, and we saw um, Kat Hernandez's treatment. You know, fat character on the show, because um, her first season arc I thought was very strong. I wrote about it at one point. And then her arc just evaporated in season two because some behind the scenes things allegedly, I got put allegedly there always. <laughs> but um, yeah, after stuff like that, and then for um, Sid, um, after kind of observing the treatment of um, Kelly and Insecure, um, how like Kelly never really had uh arc like that, like some of these other characters. Um, after observing both of them, we were like, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. Um, cause it's one thing to talk about fat phobia at length through our articles or through our tweets. Um, but it's another thing to, again, like I will say, put it down on paper. Um, I remember when I made the Kent test, um, and you know, people started coming up professors and teachers like, yeah, I like, I just put it into my curriculum. Cause I was like, wow, I can't believe we weren't doing this before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now you have people really kind of looking at um, the kind of, um, I don't want to say representation, but like the kind of bias that is at play in some of these uh, media representations of black women or women of color, right? So I, me and Sid wanted to do the same thing for fat people because I, we was tired of going in circles about this kind of fat folk tropes we kept seeing. Like, I don't like repeating myself. So I was like, I'm going to put it on paper so you can see it and we don't have to go back and forth like this because I'm not going back and forth. You just read the paper. Um, so that's kind of what we decided. We're like, you know, when you put it on paper, it's harder to pretend that it does not exist. Um, so that was kind of our goal with it. Um, similar to the Kent test, it has a certain amount of criteria. Um, you can go up to about 12 points. So zero to 12. Um, and let me see. So it has about one, two, three, four. See, hold on. I'm scrolling right now. Just make sure I can count. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll put, there's a really great a link with a PDF of the, the whole Kelly and Cat test criteria. I'll include that. So it's about three, I would say like three, um, 
prompts or a list of criteria. Um, the very first one mentions the fat suit, and it mentions that if there's a fat suit involved, don't even finish the rest of the test. It's a zero. It's disqualified. Yes, yeah, disqualified. Disqualified. Um, and um, I actually, side note, I can't wait for Sid's um, book because they're cooking one up. And they're, they will also be talking about the fat suit and its origins being blackface. I know a lot of people not prepared for that one, but Sid is about to, you know, Sid's about to shake the table, so I can't wait for that. Um, but yeah, we were like, fat suit, zero, zero. Um, then, you know, obviously I'll let your audience kind of read the test, but um, if I'm going down the line, we talk about character arcs. We talked about fat people not being um, supporting characters or, um, you know, accessories to thin, thinner main characters, lighter skinned main characters, because we talked about colorism briefly as well in the test. Um, we also talked about the, the weird words that people use for fat, including, let's say, husky, um, big boned voluptuous, um, curvy, fluffy, husky, plus size, thick, any type of those words, we were like, y'all need to be careful with that. Um, and then we had um, common fat phobic or um, color strokes, which we list them in the test, so y'all can go ahead and look at that, but it was, it was a couple. It was a couple. Um, so then we had, after that, we had um, romantic interests. I know people are, you know, we, we kind of went back and forth between me and said about whether we want to include this, but we're like, no, we're going to include it. Um, we'll put an asterisk there and mention that, like, obviously it has to be relevant to the plot. But it's one of those things where, like, you know, if these type of, like, relationships or relationship configurations exist in this particular piece of media and you've kind of went out of your way to make sure that the fat character cannot participate, yeah, I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to have some questions. Like, unless they come out and be like, I'm not interested in that, or I don't know, maybe I'm Ace or Arrow or something, and that's not of concern, that's fine. But, like, if you've made a point where this media discusses these type of relationships and we look over and the fat person is not, is not nothing happening over there, we're going to have some questions. Right? So we had mentioned something like that. We talked about interactions with other fat people. You know, like, there's always this tokenization right i hate tokenization tokenization of the marginalized character in what is um usually the overwhelming norm so if you have a piece of media where it's mostly thin people sometimes it'll slip the random fat person in there so they can't be called fat phobic um if you have the majority white cast sometimes it'll slip the random black person asian person whoever there so they can't be called racist so we built, put that rule in there to be like, hey, stay away from tokens if you can. But say, you know, because it's not, it's not cute. Um, it also cheapens your writing. But, you know, some people don't care. So we've talked about fetishization in that way where me and you were discussing, like, the sexualization of fat people. Um, then we mentioned um, no hyperfixations on food and exercise. They love to do that to us. Um, Sydney brought up a great point, actually, about the marathon storyline that they love to give us. Um, it actually, ironically, came up near the end of Insecure. 
And when they told me, I was like, that's crazy. That's crazy. I thought we were like past this point, but apparently not. But yeah, they always try to give us a good marathon storyline. And we know what that's for and who that's for, but we usually pretend we don't know. So we wanted to put that in there. Um, and then we had mentioned um, adequate access to styling. Um, just like that, that flop, you know, that sloppy thing me you discussed. Um, I hate that. They like to put us in whatever. Uh, and part of that is also fed by the fact that, you know, again, it's completely normal for a lot of these stores to just not care our sizes. So there's a, there's a lot at play here, but we're like, if you give a fuck, find a budget and make sure that you're fat, actress, actor, whoever is properly styled. Because if you have all your thin characters dressed to the nines and then your fat character is not, is not giving that, yeah, I'm going to have some questions. So there was that. And then we had, um, supportive parental figure, um, Again, I and Sid were like, you know, it, it helps to have one someone on the screen who's not antagonistic towards this person. Um, if it's a parent, then all the more better. Um, and then we had, after that, we had a specific criteria for dialogue, which was directly born out of what happened to Kat um, in that Sid's Euphoria um, I'm not going to lie to you. I went kind of went back and did like kind of the math on how much time she had to speak for real throughout that whole season. Um, and it was kind of ugly. Like, I think it was barely either we hit 60 minutes or barely, barely 60 um, or barely over. Um, and it's one of those things where like y'all really cut down her dialogue this much. Like, that's crazy. Um, there's actually a scene if you if you know, people who watch Euphoria or if you're interested, right? If you go back to Euphoria, there's a scene where um what's the character's name? What's her name? Oh my god. There's Cassie, um the white girl character who's, you know, kind of girl next door but slutty too, that whole thing. Um <laughs> so there was her and then I I can't Maddie? Yes, Maddie. Maddie, um, you know, the, the, you know, very, um, she's, you know, she's very bold. She's very self-possessed. She'd be a little mean, be a little mean. I'm not gonna hold you to be a little mean. Um, she's Latinx. Um, she had a very toxic ex who come, who then comes into, um, the conversation between her, um, and Cassie. And there's like some, some bad blood there. I can't really spoil everything, but, um, you know, Kat, that character is trying to calm Maddie down at some point, and you can't even hear what she's saying. Mm. Like, her mouth is moving, but I don't hear no sound. It's a weird, kind of, like, erasure. It was, the way that she was treated during that second season was wild. I was like, y'all really not gonna let her talk. Like, like what? So, yeah, we put that rule in there. Um, and, you know, obviously there's specific rules like or time measurements within the rule. So we said five to 10 minutes in a 30 minute episode. Then we had 10 to 15 in a 60 minute. And then we had like a fourth of the total runtime of the film. Um, obviously, very arbitrary, um, technically. 
But I was like, I'm going to put it there. I mean, Sid are going to put it there because apparently y'all need y'all hands held throughout this process. So here you go. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, I was, I was bewildered. I was like, yeah, this is where I get off too. So I love that you put this together. I'm even thinking about, again, I just think about the writers I work with who, you know, we're always talking about how to not create stereotypes. And if you're writing, uh, lived experience that is not your own. There's a responsibility to do. Well, I think there's a responsibility to do some research so you're not just perpetuating. Yeah, there is. Uh, people will feel away when you say that, but there is. Um, you know, media in this country, it, it, all of it, even good media um, has a, a bent to it. Um, there's always some message, some sometimes some very bad propaganda at play. Um, and you just have to be aware just have to be aware you have to consume things with a critical eye i don't really care what you say now there can be things that you do watch for fun for personal enjoyment but i think people need to understand that like everything has a bias to it you know even if you're not aware of it that doesn't change anything it's still present so so true yeah, this is a great resource. I'm so glad you created it. You and um, Sid created it. It's amazing. I'll link to it. Um, yeah, anyone who's curious about evaluating your favorite shows or books. Uh, I was thinking, I often think of the movie, I don't know if you've seen the movie Finding Figaro. No, not not that one, no. Yeah, because I'm always, I'm always like, where's, where are, where's like the good show movie where fatness is represented in a way that is not problematic and i think as you were talking i was thinking about that movie and i think it's pretty good it'd be high up there there were a few things where it didn't quite do it but it's i i don't know my impression i'm curious if this if you think this too is that there's not a lot out there that would get really high scores yeah i i'm trying to think of <laughs> i will say though um if i love queen latifah and i like a lot of her rom-coms um i think those would score very high um they scored very high on the can test um i think they would score very high on um the kelly and cat test obviously you have to actually measure it but um i definitely appreciate her um because if you look at her earlier rom-coms you know there, there's some fat politics there you know, she, it's probably, it was, uh, I think it was unbeknownst to her. She talks about later where um, thinking about vocab and these other things, you know, might not have occurred to her. But, you know, she was very aware as a black woman who was larger that, you know, her body was still policed. She went into like, you know, some antidote about being on, you know, living single. And even though it's a very successful show, you know, her and I want to say Erica Alexander, I'm not, don't quote me in that last part, but at least in the very least her, you know, there were like producers and the powers that be, you know, around that show saying that they should like lose weight and stuff. And she was like, what the fuck? So like, you know, she's dealt with stuff like that in the industry. So it's one of those things like even if she was not um, openly talking about fatness, like it's still like present her work. I think one of my favorite examples of that um, one is um, Beauty Shop and the other is Just Right. Um Beauty Shop, classic, black classic, love it. Um, but in there, I love what she does with kind of poking fun at very old fat stereotypes, um, especially from the late 90s, early 2000s. 
So one really good example is that um, there's a scene where before she goes into her, you know, goes into work, you know, as a hairstylist, she's at home, she's getting ready, she's putting on her pants. Um, you know, her daughter comes in and she's asking her like, hey, do these pants make my butt look big? And we all know what that means if we studied media and fatness, right? And her daughter's like, yeah. And she's like, good. Good. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's right. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, very quick, you know, very quick not to it. But like, if you're aware of where that um, trope comes from, then you understand what's happening there, especially as a black woman, right? Um, so that's number one. Number two, I don't want to, you know, not sure. Well, I, people, I think people should watch the movie. It's very cute. But in that movie, Just Right, there's... um. There's a lot at play with um, her character, um, her character's mother, who's played by Pam Greer, shout out, um, and then the character's cousin, who is thinner and lighter skinned. There's a lot that goes on. Um, Most of it's not explicitly said in the film, and I think for a very good reason. Um, I think it's something that, you know, um, you need to be able to intuit, right? but there's this speech that she, you know, gives not just her parents at one point, but like the love interest points of getting caught up with that kind of like th- those two, that kind of uh, those um, contrasting love interests. Right. Um, but she talks about um, not wanting to be like the homegirl. Right. Wanting to be the actual romantic interest, not just someone that you like chill with. Um, or, um, you come to when you're sad, you know, when you're sad and you need comfort, right? So she has a whole like thing where she talks about that. She doesn't mention being fat once, but I don't think she needed to because, you know, if you fat, you know, you just know you, you've been through something like that where someone was trying to put you in a box, um, in an interpersonal relationship, even if it wasn't romantic, right? try to put you in a box as their like comfort toy and that's all you're like there for you know yeah you're not you're not out in public with them but they'll come to you when you need when they need something yeah you know a lot of her movies do stuff like that like she don't have to come out and say it she is illustrating um the problem and the frustration that a lot of us fat people face so i think her movies would do pretty well yeah, that's great. Thank you for both for recommending both of those. I feel like I've seen them, but I don't like not in years. Like these are older movies, right? Like you said. Yeah, yeah we're giving like so Beauty Shop definitely like early two thousands. Early, I want to say it was like two thousand four, two thousand six. I got to go back and look. Just right came out twenty ten. That that one's a little further back too. <laughs> but um, yeah, she. I love her as a romantic interest, uh, romantic heroine. I hope that she does more. If I see her in, in public, I'm going to be like, I need more rom-coms. <laughs> well, the one I'm thinking of is, um, was it called Last Holiday? Last Holiday is the Queen Liberty for rom-com. I love that movie. Um, it was actually, people don't remember, it was actually a remake. Um, and um, I don't remember the exact verbiage in the uh, Roger Ebert review that came out for the film, but he was basically like, "I don't even care as a remake." It was it was made much more like magical, like a little magical, magical. Excuse me. Um, 
by its inclusion, you know, of Queen Latifah, because she herself very, you know, just just an effervescent human being. And um, yeah, the movie's great. You know, it does tap into those things that I mentioned. Um, like it, it just just I I advise people watch it. But like you know, if you're watching it with a critical eye, the movie also once again kind of um, highlights some of that, you know anti-fat bias or even internalized bias too um because there's this really important scene where um she so she's a great cook she loves food understands like how special food is right and she ends up cooking this delicious meal for her neighbor a younger black kid um and she doesn't partake in that meal she gives him the food and then she takes out one of those like microwavable like foods yeah like like a lean cuisine or something yeah lean cuisine healthy choice and i remember looking at that like look at these writers yeah look at these writers not saying the thing but also saying the thing like they need to tell us that you know there was something going on with her they but they showed us which is important for visual medium so it's just like stuff like that where i'm like where she she's in the movie and again, the thing gets indirectly addressed, and I do actually do appreciate that because you know sometimes if you out, sometimes if you come out with it, people will get defensive and they won't engage. But you know, but if you you know you slide it in there, sometimes they'll be like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, you kind of carry them along with the story, and then it, that can work its magic. Yeah, totally. I would actually recommend um, on that note. Bell Hooks tackles discussing fat phobia in, in a similar way um, in her book about, um, what's it called, Communion, The Search for Female Love. I recommend everybody go read that one too. Um, and in the book, there's a chapter where it's called, I think, Growing into a Woman's Body and Loving It. And she talks about fat phobia. She never mentions the word once. I looked. But she talks about fat phobia. Um, she uses the entry point of eating disorders um, and how they appear as the result of this kind of white supremacist obsession with thinness um, and how thinness is weaponized against women um, to control us, you know, to keep us small, quite literally, keep us small. <laughs> um, small and starving. <laughs> yes, she talks about it. She talks about her own struggles with disorder eating. She goes on for quite a bit in that chapter about it. Um, and I I actually respect her for doing that because imagine you read that chapter and you're like talking to someone about it. Like maybe they're talking to you or me and they're like, yeah, she's talking about fat phobia. And then you're like, oh my God. But you know, Belle got them there by just literally describing the thing. Um, and she, you know, and she also calls out feminists too for it where they're like you know she's like you know disorder eating in particular is too much for of a problem for not for us to not have addressed this yet you know so she she uses that entry point but she's talking about that holding like like everyone should go read that chapter because she she goes she goes on and she talks about um fat phobia and parenting like what happens with like husbands and wives and their children like she she went in. She went in, and I'm like, I was, I was just amazed because like she doesn't say fat or fat phobia once. Um, maybe fat. 
maybe that because she was talking about getting older and like getting, you know getting you know that weight gain that happens when you get older. She mentioned that, but she does not say fat woman once. And I was like, this actually was quite. You know, usually I'm a stickler for vocab. I'm a stickler for naming things. So I'm a writer. That's what I do. But I was like, actually, Belle, the act of you not saying this was actually quite effective. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend that too. You know, some sometimes subtext subtext is important. Sometimes I think most of the time it is a coward's game, but sometimes it is effective. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I'll link to um, I'll link to that as well. Um, all right, Clarkisha, we're coming to the final question, which is about joy. So what is what's your relationship to joy? How do you choose it? Do is it do you believe it's something we can choose? How do you feel about joy? I think it's both a feeling and um, a choice. Um, I think it, I think it did what it's form, the form that it takes depends on the day, depends on the per person. My relationship to joy is, you know, it's very, it's complex. It's complex because I've seen a lot of really ugly, terrible things. Um, and you know, sometimes those things weigh on me and I'm like, what the fuck is joy? You know, on a particularly dark day. Um, but you know, on a day like this, I would say that, um, I think I have a relationship with joy that is still kind of uh, in its infancy. Um, and what I mean by that is that I, younger versions of me, did not think that joy was a thing I could experience for obvious reasons why we're here on the podcast, right? Um, but, you know, now that I'm older, now that I've developed a stronger fat politic, you know, I'm trying to kind of um, reestablish my relationship with joy and happiness. So, you know, I'm not quite there yet. Um, it's something I've literally been rebuilding, especially through the pandemic. It was a very terrible time for a lot of us. Um, so, yeah, I would say that my relationship with Joy is still very young because I had to I had to start over. I had to start over. I did not think Joy was the thing I could, you know, have as a fat person. So I've been having to rewrite that narrative for myself. And on a day like today, what 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 does bring you joy? Is there a thing what or brings me joy? So what brings me joy? I'm not gonna lie to you, um, movies, but particularly as a subset of movies, um, either I like like certain comedies, especially if, like Will Ferrell is like making an appearance. Like I think he's so fucking funny. Um, I'm actually like every day, like I, he's getting older and scare me. Like I know time is a thing, but I'm like, oh my god, like I can't. Um, <laughs> I love um comedies, love comedies. Um, but I also love horror. Oh my god, like I love a good horror movie. Like I'll be scared shitless out of my mind, but I'll be having a blast. I'll be having a blast because I just think. That I think horror movies are much smarter than people give them credit for. Um, and, you know, I think you really have to know your shit as a writer to be able to write a good horror and a good comedy. So I, I enjoy the shit out of those genres. And they do bring me joy because for me, it's like I'm enjoying it purely because it's like part of this art form. But I'm also enjoying it because the person that made it slash wrote it was also clearly, you know, clearly enjoying what they were doing. That's why it's this good. Um, so... 
I love that. I love, I love I, the joy of like just watching something that you've never watched before. And it's just so good. You And then just also sits with you and it resonates. Um, and like, even if let's say I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a zombie. I'm not a monster. I'm not no oogie Like I'm not none of those things, but you know, you look at these stories and sometimes you can relate, like you mentioned to the monster, you know, you can relate, um, to the entity that is maybe terrorizing our heroes because, you know, maybe you did them wrong. <laughs> it's sometimes like that. So I just, I really derive a lot of joy from watching these things because, you know, it, again, it requires um, so much creativity, um, but also so much commitment um, to finishing a story. Um, a bunch of us, including myself, I have like a bajillion stories in my job box that are not done. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I really do get joy from seeing people bringing these um, amazing, but also terrifying, <laughs> terrifying stories to scream, to scream, to scream. Scream. That was a good, that scream. was a good slip. <laughs> Bringing it to scream. <laughs> oh, beautiful. I also am a big fan. Like, I always joke, my hobby is watching great TV and great movies with all the streaming services now. It's like, there's never a shortage. Um, and it also brings me great joy. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation, Clarkisha. I'm so glad to meet you. I'm so excited to link to all the things we've talked about. And um, yeah, everyone listening, read the book, get the book, follow Clarkisha on all the places. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. I had a hard time picking a poem for Kakisha's episode. Clarkisha is such a bringer of chaos, a disruptor, oh, inspiring. So I ended up choosing a poem called Daphne's Broken Sonnet, which is by Iris Jamal Dunkel, because I find it challenging in a good way, in a provocative way. And there's a deep truth that moves me so deeply in the last line of the poem. So here it is, Daphne's Broken Sonnet. Apples are imagining themselves into hillsides. Pink petals stick out their tongues from the dark mouths of branches. And the forest canopy ripens overnight until it pulses like a green heart. Spring Frankensteins us all, softens our cyborg brains. Admit it, you were thinking about what mysteries your phone will sing out while your body turns like a tree towards the light. Reader, some days it's just too much. Powder blue sky, light wind stirring the leaves as if they're waving, no beckoning me to root and join in. How could I not give in? Trying to find the song that's buried in the soil. 
Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.